BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. For the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know. I know there ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I'll say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow. Now, is there? Anybody wants to get mellow, you can turn around and get the fuck out of here, all right? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host A. Trunk. Hey, everybody, it's Eddie Trunk, and welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast news making interviews with the biggest names in rock music. New episodes every Thursday. Be sure to subscribe so you do not miss one. And glad to have you on board for this week. Again, everything you hear on this podcast happened live on my SiriusXM radio show, which is called Trunk Nation and is heard live Monday through Friday from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Faction Talk SiriusXM Channel 103 is where you will hear it, and you can hear it anytime you want on the SiriusXM app, on demand or streaming in the daily 3 to 5 Eastern window. If you're in the U.S. or Canada and you can get SiriusXM and you only listen to this podcast, you're only getting a tiny taste of what I do every day on the radio live. So hope you join me for the full Trunk Nation experience. If you are a subscriber, you can also get video and, like I said, audio on demand anytime you want on the app. Also, there is a sixth show on Mondays, 5 to 8 Eastern, live on Hair Nation, Channel 39. Got a syndicated FM show and just announced about a week ago, going to be doing an online show with my old That Metal Show partners, Don and Jim. It's called That Rocks. It's premiering in May. You can see a teaser video and subscribe to the channel. Just go to YouTube and find the channel That Rocks, T-H-A-T-R-O-C-K-S, and join me, Don and Jim, once a week live on YouTube, talking rock music with you there as well. For all the TMS fans missing the three of us together, I uh, hope you join us for that. A lot of excitement about that. Subscribe to the channel. More information coming very soon about the premiere. And thank you for all the support there as well. All right, here on the podcast this week, we got two great interviews to bring to you. Uh, we're going to start with Lenny Kravitz. This interview happened uh, it's about, well, it's leading into the Grammys. It was just before the Grammys happened. So it's already a couple months, I believe. And this happened really unexpectedly. Lenny is a friend. I'm a huge fan. 
And he was tweeting the day I came on the air about the fact that it was the 30th anniversary of Are You Gonna Go My Way? So I reached out to Lenny and asked him if he'd like to come on and talk about that. He got right back to me and he said, yeah. So the conversation you're about to hear with Lenny Kravitz was totally spontaneous. And he was actually in a car, as you're about to hear, in L.A., getting ready to perform at the Grammys. And he took time out on his ride from the airport to call into the show. Great guy. It's an honor to know this guy and to be able to grab him like this and have him on the air with us. And I'm glad to bring you this interview now as my podcast this week. Also, a second interview this week, because we've been stacked on the radio show with guests. And again, I only bring you a little taste here on the podcast, but I'm going to bring you two this week. Coming up after Lenny Kravitz, album artist Hugh Syme. Hugh is best known for doing almost every Rush album cover, but above that, he's done a ton of other art and a ton of other covers. Hugh Syme is our second conversation this week on the podcast. We'll start with Lenny right now. We'll talk to Hugh second. But right now, we go to L.A., Lenny Kravitz on the eve of performing at the Grammy Awards, checking in on Trunk Nation to talk about Are You Gonna Go My Way at 30 and more. Here's Lenny Kravitz on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Lenny, how are you, brother? I'm great, Eddie. How you doing, bro? Good, man. How are you? Where are you? Are you, uh, I know I'm, you're doing the, you're doing the Academy Awards this weekend, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. I just got to LA last night, so I'm actually on the 10 freeway right now looking at the snow-capped mountains heading into Hollywood and um, all is well, all is well. What are you going to be doing at the awards? You're doing the in memoriam, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll be there with Chris. You there, man? You dropped out for a second. You said you, Lenny, you dropped out for a second. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be there uh, playing with Craig Ross and uh and the orchestra and uh we're gonna play an old tune kind of an obscure one i'm not gonna say what it is uh but very appropriate for uh this occasion all right well we look forward to seeing that so um listen man i i saw your post earlier which is what you know i texted you about that i I couldn't believe it because this crept up on me that are you gonna go my way is 30 years old today um Man, it just like blows my mind that the record is that old <laughs> because I, I feel like it was just yesterday that I was playing it on the radio when it was new. Yeah, that's the that that's that's the beauty of of our perspective, right? It's yeah, it's been thirty years, and I mean, I remember it like it was yesterday. It was it was an incredible time uh, when I made that record, which I made uh, at Waterfront Studios uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, where I made. Uh, my first few albums and uh i was living in the city over on broom and mercer in my loft and uh it was a very exciting time and that that's actually the first record uh that i made uh with craig ross uh because he joined me after mama said went on the mama said tour with me and he was the first person that i uh started working in the studio with because you know for the most part i play all or most of the instruments on everything and I found this genius of a guitar player and a beautiful human being. And he and I um, worked together on that album. And, and uh, it was was amazing. It was amazing to find somebody uh, 
that I could relate to in that way. We, we didn't have to speak. Everything was very instinctual. We understood each other. Uh, if I played a part, he played the exact uh, accompanying part. You know, it just worked. Everything worked. And uh, we made a really beautiful record together. Well, as you said, the first two records leading into this was pretty much all you writing and playing everything. And now you find yeah. this collaborator who, of course, you still work with to this day in Craig Ross. That's right. You, you, how did you how did you find him, Lenny? How did you guys connect and, and create this bond? So I was at a pool hall one night on, on uh, Hollywood Boulevard and uh, Kathy Valentine from the Go-Go's walked up to me. Now, I had known Kathy uh, from A&M Records at the studio um, when I was making my demos under Romeo Blue. And I don't know how she remembered me, but they, she did. And they treated me really nicely. I was this, like, teenage kid in there making demos. They were at the height of their uh, success, and uh, they were in the studio cutting. I don't, I, I don't even know what they were cutting at the time. But they used to party and hang out, and they were a lot of fun. So she walks up to me, and I said, I can't believe you remember me. She said, of course I remember you. And she congratulated me on Let Love Rule. And uh, I think Mama said it had been out a week, if that. And she said, do you by chance need a guitar player? And I said, actually, I do. I'm getting ready to go on the tour. And I was auditioning guitar players at the time perfect timing she points over to this pool table across the room she says see that guy with the hair she goes that's your guitar player i said <laughs> is he he was in a band at the time called broken homes that had uh, a couple of few albums out and were having success but something was going on with the group he was ready to leave it, it was his group but he didn't want to do it anymore and so she invited me over to the table i sat we talked um, the next morning. I, I think it was, might've been like eight, nine in the morning. It was really early. He came by my place where I was staying and I said, okay, I just finished this album called mama said, I'm going to play you the music. And he said, I already know it. So how do you know it? It's been out a week. He's like, I know it. I, I got it. I know it. And he sat there and played me all of my music in my face to perfection and from that day until right now, today, uh, we've been inseparable and done everything together, you know, uh, living in the same places, uh, you know, uh, flying together, uh, living on the tour buses together, making all these albums together. Um, he's the person that I see the most in life. And uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful. But yeah, Kathy Valentine, man. That's amazing. That's amazing. And, and so reason, Lenny went, and, and the reason she and the reason she knew him, he was um, he was her roommate at the time. Oh, okay. She was with, at the time she was with Clem. What's Clem's last name from Blondie, the drummer? Clem Burke. Clem Burke, exactly. So she was with Clem, and and Craig was the roommate, and they all lived together. That's amazing, Len, Lenny. When yeah. you listen to this record, thirty years on. I mean, the thing that jumps out to me from my perspective about it, having been a fan of yours since day one, since Let Love Rule, and I remember playing that when it first hit, but to me, this record was really the one that, it, it was a nice build from Let Love Rule into Mama Said, and then when this thing hit, 
specifically the title track at rock radio. Yes. Everything really changed for you. That was a whole different level, wasn't it? It did, you know, and it, it's so strange because if you listen to everything else that was out at the time, uh, rock and roll or otherwise, it was just so different and so raw and, uh, and the panning was crazy. The recording was crazy, you know, things on one side, things, you know, phasing all over the place. And it, it, it took a minute, like it came out and it was a very slow build. And then I met Mark Romanic who made the, are you going to go my way video? And which was just, sometimes you get the right music at the right time with the right image. And that happened. And I remember MTV sort of fighting with it. Like they played it, but they played it really late at night. You know, they weren't giving me, you know, great rotation at that time. And they kept working it and working it. The guys at Virgin Records were working it, you know, radio. And it, it looked like it was going to kind of not happen. And it just, one of those moments, it just went, just one day, everything just changed. It just happened. And then it just never went away. And um, it was a very magical moment. And, you know, we had a, an amazing world tour where, uh, as you probably know, in Europe, you know, Robert Plant opened for us. I can't even call it opening. Was a was our beyond <laughs> special was our beyond special guest. It right. made absolutely no sense at all that I was going on after whole lot of love. You know what I mean? It was right. but but it was just a it was just that time, you know, he wanted to go on the road. Uh he had put out a solo record and he wanted to play for younger people and liked my music and met me and uh, we became great friends and still are to this day, but it was just an amazing run. And uh, I'm very grateful. And, and as you say, it was that moment that just tipped the scales, you know? Do you remember, I mean, of course you do, but the just speaking, and I want to hit you about a couple other songs that I love on the record mm -hmm. and get a few things from you. I, I don't want to hold you too long. I'm sure you're busy. No, but I'm, I'm all good. I'm in uh, the car, bro. Oh, good. I appreciate it, man. So but do you remember, I mean, the riff, to are you going to go my way is so has in the last 30 years has become so iconic and so signature. Do you remember that riff? Did you bring it in? Did Craig bring it in? Do you remember the origins of the riff to the song? You know, it was a jam. It was a jam. So what happened was at the time um, I was producing an album on a French artist named Vanessa Paradis. Um, I don't know if you remember that. Um, I do. A, a legend in, in France and in Europe. She uh, was married to Johnny Depp. You remember her, right? Yes, I do. I do. De I definitely remember yeah. the name. I don't know the music, but I remember yeah. the name so, and your involvement. So, yeah. So I, so I produced that record um, and we were in the studio in Hoboken and I was cutting, are you going to go my way album and her album at the same time. And these were still the days when I, when I wasn't getting lockouts in the studio, I had like, you know, you have to work between this time and that time. I, I, I uh, was still working that way. I could, I couldn't, couldn't afford it yet to take the whole lockouts. Right. When we were making that record. And so Craig, myself and Tony bright, who's the bass player that was playing with me at that time, uh, five minutes before the next client was coming in, went into the recording studio and just started jamming. And we had no idea what was going on. And this thing just 
happened between I was on the drums, Craig was on the on the guitar, and Tony was on the bass. And it just happened, you know? And it was just this moment. Uh, and, but we had to do it in five minutes because the other clients were outside waiting <laughs> to uh, get in, right? And so we did it. It was one take, done. I didn't have any words. I didn't have any lyrics. I took the cassette home and I just kept playing the cassette on my box over and over and over uh, the whole day. And then the lyrics came, the melody came. I pulled out a paper bag and started writing on it. Went back in the next day and cut the vocal. I knew that it felt good, um, but I, I, you know, you, you don't know what it is, right? I just knew that it felt good and had no idea that it was going to be a song that, that would change my life like that, you know? Yeah, it's it's incredible. That's always so interesting to me when I talk to artists who have songs like that in their catalog to to know if like they knew at the time, like about 30 years from now, this is still going to be my signature song. And, and most of the yeah. times they don't. But you knew well enough about it that even before it came out, you knew it was good. It became the track that opened the record and you named the record after it. So you knew I, I imagine it had to feel really yeah. special even then. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that was, that was the statement, you know, and that was the tune that, that really stood out. And there's beautiful songs on that record, you know, yeah. but that was the thing that stood out and the, and the title and just the album cover and everything, which, which Jean-Baptiste Mondino uh, shot, you know, right in front of my loft on, on Broom Street down on the street. Um, it just all fit together. So it was beyond, it was beyond me. You know, there's just, there are just those moments where you catch a wave, you jump on and you let it take you where it's going to take you, you know? Another one on the record that I love that became a big song too, is believe what, what, what can you tell mm -hmm. us about that in retrospect? Um, that was one of those songs, you know, there's always a song on a record that just takes a lot of time. And um, that was one of them. I don't know how many times I recorded the drums over the bass over, you know, uh, uh, Henry Hirsch on, on, uh, on the, on the world. you know, it was just one of those tunes that took a lot of time, um, just by virtue of it, not sounding the way I wanted it to sound. Um, and the one thing that I could say that, that, uh, that did happen quickly in, in one take uh, was Craig's solo at the end, which is which I love, such God, I love a it. classic, beautiful, uplifting yes. uh, guitar solo, man, that just really shows who he is. You know, Craig does not get uh, enough credit uh, and mention. Uh, he is an extraordinary musician and, a, and just a genius uh, guitar player who can play any style and uh but that solo at the end is 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 the moment for me you know i mean yeah me a beautiful too chorus um but that solo just takes you off you know yeah it soars it's so cool it's got such yeah. a great feel and tone and just epic it just gives even this even though the song is like 
just under five minutes. It it, it feels so grand and epic the way it, it goes out. It's just unreal. Um, you know, yeah, and you and I. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lenny. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. All good. I was going to say you and I both. Uh, one of our bonds uh, musically is that we both grew up big Kiss fans. I remember when I got this record, I said, "Oh, he covered Come On and Love Me," <laughs> the old uh, Kiss yeah. song. <laughs> you know, it wasn't that. I didn't even think about the title, and that is such a great song. Um, yes. Yeah, there's that other track, Come On and Love Me, which is like, you know, this sort of bombastic uh, drum beat jam with a funky guitar and, and falsetto um, vocals. But yeah, but I'm sure somewhere in there subconsciously that title came out because of that, you know? <laughs> right. It's not the Kiss song, but it is an original yeah. song. And and the other yeah. thing that I didn't know until fairly recently is there's one song on the record that you did not write, and it's Heaven Help, which was also a pretty That's big song. Right. What was the origins of that? So I in in my career, I've only done two or three cover songs. I, I don't normally do them. My cousin, Jerry DeVoe, from the Bahamas, uh, who I grew up with, wrote that song. He was a songwriter. And he wrote it with Terry Britton, who, uh, you know, is a huge songwriter, wrote all those big songs for Tina Turner, uh, We Don't Need Another Hero, so forth and so on. And they wrote that song. He cut a demo of it. Uh, and I heard it. And he was giving it to some artist. And he just wanted me to hear it. And I heard it. And I said, I got to sing this song. I, I feel this song. I got to sing this song. And um, I wrestled with him to to get it back from whoever he was giving it to. And uh, I cut it. And, uh, yeah, it just felt right. Just every now and again, you hear a song that is not yours in it. And it feels like it is yours, you know? Yeah, because as you said, and for people that don't aren't as geeky as I am about this stuff with credits and ha and what have you, for the most part in your career, you've written everything. You've had a few co-writers yeah. here and there, but you've always had a big hand and recorded it. And that, and of course, the thing that comes to mind later in your career is covering American Woman, which actually American became a Woman. huge hit for you. Yeah, yeah, which is uh, hysterical that you know a lot of younger people that you know weren't hip to the guess who they think it's my song you know right but uh that 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 was a very difficult one to tackle because the song is perfect i mean the guess who's song is absolutely perfect and i got a i got a call from uh guy osiri uh who was involved with the the was the spy who shagged me right uh um and uh the austin powers movie and they they were very specific they wanted that song covered and so he called me and said, you should do this. And uh, I thought, how am I going to do anything with this song? It's perfect. Um, but I just sat with it and, you know, came up with that groove, uh, which was just really very simple. Uh, you know, kick drum claps and, and uh, hi-hat and uh, built the thing on top of it. And uh, again, had no idea that it was going to be what it was and be this huge hit and, you know, a, a Grammy winner and et cetera. It was just something that I was just challenged to do, you know, and it was an honor to do. And what was great about it was I got to know the guests who after that, who had been sort of on chill mode for a while. And it's just one of those beautiful things where it's a win-win for everybody. I got to cover their beautiful song. 
they got to make a lot of money. And, you know, I, I remember, you know, a couple of the guys calling me and, you know, had were able to, you know, go buy a new house. house and do whatever and <laughs> went back on the road and, you know, uh, got a lot of attention for them and at, at the time. And so it was just a big win-win for everybody, but so much respect for those guys who, you know, have made their indelible mark, you know, uh, yeah. on the rock and roll scene, you know? Yeah. You don't do, you don't do a lot of covers, but you know how to pick them when you do and, and really make them into something, which is really cool. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I want to ask you about another ripper on the record, which talk about killer riffs that, that you know, you know me, man, I love the, the big guitar driven stuff. And, uh, is there any love in your heart, man? Kicks ass. Yeah, Tell we, me about that one. Yeah, yeah. We used to open the show with that. Um, uh, there's footage you can see from a thing called Alive from Planet Earth, and we used to open with tr- with that track. And again, that was that was uh, Craig, myself, and Tony jamming. So on the majority of the record, it's 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 me with 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 Craig playing as well, uh, or some tracks are all me. But those there's three tracks where Tony's playing bass with us, and that was Just Be a Woman, Are You Gonna Go My Way, and Is There Any Love in Your Heart? I can't believe I remember this uh, at this moment, but. Um, that was another jam, you know, and we love to jam. We would love to just pick up our instruments. I loved getting behind the drums uh, and we were just playing and playing, came up with all, came, you know, came up with the changes, uh, Craig and myself. And um, that was another live uh, session, you know, r- uh, rhythm section session. And uh, after cutting it uh, by virtue of the key, because when we jam, I don't, I'm not thinking about the keys and it's just the right vocal key and whatnot. We just play and I got to deal with it. And the key that it was in led me to um, writing that melody, which was in falsetto, which I think worked really well against all of those guitars. You know, you wouldn't expect to have a, a falsetto jam, but it was, you know, it had a Zeppelin-esque sort of feeling and, uh, yeah, we just went with it. But that that's one of my favorites as well. It has a lot of energy. You know, I'm a, a huge fan of the record that followed Are You Gonna Go My Way as well, which is Circus, which mm. will yeah. be 30 in a few years. But when I hear something like, um, is there any love in your heart? It feels like it almost could have also been on Circus. Like, it seems like with Circus on some of the stuff, you kind of went in, in, in a little bit more of that direction. Yeah, yeah. and And, you know, they're right next to each other. And, uh, yeah, I was sort of in that mode and then I got, you know, carried even further, uh, when we went out to, uh, we, we cut the majority of that record, uh, in the castle in France. Uh, you know, we were doing the whole, you know, Zeppelin stones thing. You know, we got, we got to go, we got to go get a castle. We got to go get a chateau. And, uh, were you there uh, for tax purposes though, though, or just for the vibe? No, 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 no. (laughs) Being being an American, I didn't get that year out thing that that, that we get. So no. It was, and you, you know what's crazy right now? So I'm on La Cienega, and I just looked past, you know, the diner Norms, right? Yeah, of course. I don't know if you, so right behind Norms is a street called Albert Street, and I just saw the apartment that I was living in when I, when I met Craig in the apartment that Craig uh, came to play with me that morning. I just looked at it out of the corner of my eye, which is kind of crazy. That but, is crazy. Um, yeah. So yeah. So circus was. Uh, we. I just went to France. Uh, at the time, I was. I was with Vanessa, and I was spending a lot of time in in Paris, and I wanted to be there. And uh, yeah. So that's why I did that. 
So going back to Are You Gonna Go My Way, two more tracks I want to ask you about. Uh, Sister yeah. is, uh, is, is, is epic and one of my favorite vocals you did on the record. And, uh, mm, you know, clocking you. in at around seven minutes long, but just such a great yeah. tune. Tell me about the origins of that one. So I have a friend that I grew up with that I called my sister. And, uh, wow, it's a long story. So she, in short, she married a guy uh, who she did not know was a drug dealer amongst many things. And when she was driving on her honeymoon, because uh, they got married in Paris and then they went down to Italy, uh, they got pulled over by officials of some sort. And there was all of this blow in the, uh, in the trunk of the car. She ended up in jail. Not only did she end up in jail, she was pregnant and ended up having her child in jail and was in a jail, uh, in, you know, on some remote place in Italy. And, uh, this song is about her and about that whole situation. Uh, not enough time to get into the whole thing, but that gives you the gist of yeah. of what that was what that was about. So uh, so it opens with that line, "Sister, did you have to fall in love, uh, you know, with a man that never was up to no good, you know?" And it goes on from there. But uh, on another occasion, <laughs> we'll get into all that. Yeah, yeah. And the final track on the record is is you get you got a whole reggae vibe going on, which is fitting because. It's yeah. uh, it's about the Bahamas, right? Yes, yes. It's called Eleutheria. So I live in Eleuthera. Uh, you know, my mother was Bahamian. I've been in the Bahamas all my life, and uh, we see you on those commercials uh, for the Bahamas, Lenny, riding that yeah, horse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I love, I love the Bahamas and 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 my roots there, and uh, yeah. So I was just vibing out, and I, I, I you know, I. I didn't think I would ever do a reggae track like that, but it just kind of wrote itself. I wrote that song about uh, the feeling that I have there, you know, um, which I sort of made up the word because the island is called Eleuthera. And I, and I figured, well, the, the feeling of being there would be Eleutheria, you know, and just wrote this, this tune on, you know, about how I feel and, and this freedom. And Eleuthera means freedom in Greek, which, was, which is the name. And uh, yeah, it's one of my favorite tracks. And I've never, ever uh, played that song live. So it's a song that uh, actually I've been talking about for the next tour. Because uh, I'm getting ready to drop an album uh, this fall and get back on the road and do another world tour. Um, that's a song that I want to play live and never have. Well, it's a good challenge that you have with a new record coming. And of course, the catalog, yeah. how great it is already, trying to figure out what you do and don't play at this point in in your right. 90 or two hours is probably the biggest challenge right now making a set list right right and and did you over record a lot for are you going to go my way i know there were special editions that came out bonus tracks extras and things like that was there a lot of stuff that wasn't in the original track listing mm, there's there's just a few things i'm not one that makes you know 50 songs to pick uh you know 11 or 12 or whatever it might be um, there's normally, there's usually, you know, two, three, four, five things left over. Uh, uh, I 
seems, I don't know, the way I work, it just seems to find itself and I trust it. And uh, I kind of know when it's, when it's done, when that moment is done. So there's not a ton of things left over, you know, not like, not like Prince, you know what I mean? Where there's, you know, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of songs that over the career that have been sitting, I don't, I don't have it like that. No. Did, did the record surprise you when it went on to do over 2 million in the U S alone? I know it became really big in the UK, Australia. It was a big record as well. I mean, when, when you look back, I mean, did, I mean, it was a nice build. I mean, if you think about it for what at the time you're still a relatively new artist, to build, yes. to have the first record do half a million, second record do a million. I mean, those numbers are staggering now, but back then, that's a really nice build. And then you come into this record, and it really all comes together, puts you on a whole different level. Touring-wise, I mean, like you said, you got Legends opening for you. I mean, it all, it, it maybe seemed like it happened pretty quick to an outsider, but it really didn't. I mean, you had yeah. put a lot of groundwork in to get to this. Yeah, it, I mean, I think the build was it was, it was great, and it was you know, as it built from there uh, to Circus uh, to Five and Greatest Hits and all that stuff, and then everything just got really out of hand. I mean, it it grew at a pace that I could handle, and that enabled me to still be uh, a human being as I wanted to be. You know, um, so I'm I'm very appreciative. And you know, yeah, the tour the tours were incredible. We had great people with us. I mean. In the States, we had Blind Melon, and, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I was, you know, after after Blind Melon left on that tour, uh, Shannon passed, you know, and yeah. he was somebody that I became very, very close with and was like a brother. I mean, I really loved that kid, and um, um, so there's a lot of experiences and a lot of great artists around us uh, touring with us, and, you know, we we went all around the world. We were breaking records in Japan. I think, I think at the time it was, I think it was Eric Clapton was the only one who played more Budokans in a row. We used to go to Japan and stay for a month, which is, you know, pretty crazy to just be in mm. Japan for the month touring and doing, you know, whatever it was, nine, 10 Budokans. I don't know. And playing, you know, from Hokkaido all the way up North, all the way down South. And, uh, it was a great run and a great time and a great experience. And, Things were still raw, you know. This was pre-common uh, cell phones and pre, you know, everybody filming everything and cameras and online and all this stuff. It was still a raw time in rock and roll, and uh, so I really appreciate having, uh, you know, lived lived at that time through that. The the other thing, real quick, that I noticed about this was th this record being thirty years old, coming out in '93. When it, it was the mm -hmm. height of the CD era, and when you get the CD, yeah. which I still have in front of me, you still put it as two sides on the back of the record, side A and side B, which nobody did on CDs, of course, because you didn't flip them. But I don't recall, like, there wasn't, vinyl was pretty much done at the, when this came oh, out, no, no, right? There, there wasn't, yeah, there, yeah, was but, there a vinyl yeah, initially? Put, oh, yeah, we put vinyl out. There's a great gatefold uh, on Are You Gonna Go My Way. We were still putting out vinyl, but of course, you know, now you know, today vinyl's hip again and whatever at that time. Yeah. Vinyl was there, but people were more into having their CDs, obviously, but I have this old school thinking, uh, and feeling of side A and side B. I respect the album and all the albums that I grew up on. And there's a yes. reason song one through five or five and then five through two. There's a, there's a reason that 
they end with one thing and then begin the next side with another thing. Uh, and, uh, I still thought in that way. So I was like, fuck it. I'm putting, <laughs> I'm putting side A and side B and this is the way it goes. This is how it should be listened to, you know, take a break out, take a moment after the last song on side A, then start side B. It starts a whole nother feeling and a whole other vibe. And, you know, I know people don't think that way anymore, but, uh, I still oh, do I do that. I do too. Yeah. I appreciate that so much. I think that is is so cool. And lastly, Lenny, do you have a favorite song on the record? I mean, I know, but they're probably all like your kids. But is there one for you that uh, is 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 special? You know, at least at this moment, beyond the others. Wow. Um. Wow. You know, I I'd have to say, are you going to go my way? Just because of yeah. what it is. But then there's you know there's an album track there's there's a song called black girl on there that mm-hmm. i love that is honoring black uh black women and that's one of my favorites as well yeah yeah there's just so much yeah. so much great stuff man i'm glad yeah. and i you know i'm so i'm so appreciative of you taking a few minutes man to talk about this cuz when i saw but, you your know, post that this thing was 30 i'm like we got to do something this is this is just an amazing it's record it's amazing time in your career man yeah, I woke up and I just I happened to look at the phone and I saw that you that you had texted me and, and, and you know, I hadn't heard from you in a while and uh you know, uh I love what you do and I respect you and you you've been uh you've always been wonderful with me and I and we're both huge Kiss fans, you know. So uh <laughs> And um, I'm older. Lenny, I, I've been doing this 40 yeah. years this year, man. This your record's 30. I've been doing this shit 40 years yeah. this year. It's nuts. Well, c- c- <laughs> congratulations to you man and anyway i was happy to hear from you and uh happy to always talk to you well i appreciate that man and i hope we can talk anytime you know you're always welcome to come on even if it's unrelated to your stuff man you want to just shoot the shit about anything but uh real quick before you go what what can you tell us about the next record when are we going to get music uh the next record is is very interesting because it's uh it deals with, uh, you know, that before uh, I did Let Love Rule, uh, I was calling myself Romeo Blue and I was doing that whole thing that I had done from high school. So this record that's coming out is sort of the record I didn't make before Let Love Rule, which is very interesting because uh, I, I, I never really honored that, that, that part of my life. And when I wrote the book, let love rule that came out. I guess it was the beginning of COVID that book came out. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about the past and, and that period, uh, which is where I was out on the streets of LA, you know, trying to find myself left home when I was 15 and I was doing this whole thing under Romeo blue, uh, which led me back to being myself, which was, that's what that exercise was. But the music that I was making at that time, um, I completely, you know, did the polar opposite and that's what let love rule was i found myself so now it's very interesting to go back and look at that time when i was in my late teens and so i did that and that's essentially what this record is i'll tell you that much yeah are are they actually songs that you wrote back then or are they just in the spirit of where you were at back there's, then? there's there's two or three from that time and the rest are new in in that spirit yeah Wow, that sounds cool, man. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And for Pete, the, the yeah, last man. record, it's it's amazing that Ray's vibration is already like 
you know, four years, four and a half years old, which is you know, the last record. We were, we were in the middle of a. We were two years into a three-year world tour when COVID hit. So I, I had just left France. I went to the Bahamas for a few days to rest. And then we were getting ready to get on the plane and go to Australia, New Zealand, Asia, and continue. We had a whole, uh, we had a whole other year uh, to do because it was a three-year tour. And of course, you know, we know what happened. And I yeah. stayed in the Bahamas for two, for two plus years and actually recorded three albums um, during that time. So this is one of them. And, uh, yeah, it's been a minute. So I'm, I'm looking forward to dropping this new music and, and getting back on the road. Well, listen, man, anytime, you know, you know where I'm at and when the music's ready, you know, make sure we will get the word out and get it to me and we'll do something around that. Maybe we can, yeah, we do something cool where we get together in New York, LA, wherever it is. And and hell, I'll get on the horse with you in the Bahamas and we'll do it there. (laughs) That I would love to see. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so would I. I've never been on a horse in my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you come down, I, w- I will get you on the horse. <laughs> Lenny, listen, man, thank you so much for the time. I appreciate it, and good luck at the Academy Awards. We'll be looking for you this weekend and uh, looking forward to the new music, and happy 30th. Are you going to go my way, man? It's amazing. Uh, still holds up amazingly after three decades. Thank you, Eddie. I really appreciate it, man. Have a, have a beautiful All right, man. Day. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. 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 Well, thanks to Lenny. Really appreciate him taking the time out. And great to visit with him. Hard to believe Are You Gonna Go My Way is 30 years old. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find? Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. As I mentioned, another interview for you on the podcast. This one was done about a month ago. Album artist Hugh Syme checked in. Hugh has a gallery opening in LA coming up soon. 
And he talked about that, and he talked about some of the many legendary album covers, a lot for Rush, that he did in his incredible career. Here's that conversation on this week's podcast. Hugh, thank you so much for some time. I appreciate it. No, this is my pleasure, man. I mean, it's an honor to be with the legendary Eddie Trunk, so this is cool. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. So, you know, jumping right in, um, you know, you you live, you're, you're obviously from Canada, and we all know about your roots <laughs> with Rush, and we're going to talk about that in a second, but you're currently living in Indiana. What brought you there? Uh, my three, well, I, I credited my last book, which I did, which, which was called The Art of Rush, I dedicated it to my three sons, spelled S-U-N-S, and those are my three daughters. So um, being in Canada, I was just too far away from them. So I came down here, and I can't, I can't, you know, can't argue with the fact that Canada, the Toronto is extraordinarily expensive, <laughs> and living right. here on three acres in a newly built house with my new studio, it's, it's the life, man. It's the life I need. Hugh, I want to go back to the beginning for you, which I imagine is in Canada, and um, you know how you got started in all of this. I mean, uh, when did you get started? How did you get started? And was your interest in art to eventually do album covers, or did you want to just be an artist and then the music thing kind of just came organically? Well, this is going to sound, this is going way back, but I, my love and interest in, in art goes way back to grade one. You know, honestly, I was already aware that I was good at, maybe even better at my craft as a, as a six-year-old illustrator. <laughs> you know, my, I remember my grade one teacher, Miss Jerome, just bringing me down the hallway. I didn't know what we were doing, but we went down to the grade eight class, which was the senior class. And I was asked to stand on a chair and hold my, my crayon drawing of a redheaded woodpecker up and suddenly there was a cameraman taking pictures, and I, you know, I was a bit confused. And later that night, my mom showed me the, the newspaper. Uh, I lived in Cornwall, Ontario at the time, and I was in the newspaper being being uh, featured as an artist from that public school. So it wasn't lost on me that a little bit of adulation and praise was, you know, a little taste of glory at that age. You know, it, it, it stuck. You know, and and I also loved what I do. You know. Um, my father moved the family to England when I was 12. And even though I studied piano from age five onwards at that sort of pivotal point for a lot of musicians and people in the industry, seeing the Ed Sullivan show and the Beatles, you know, really did it for me. And, and within months, my father announced that we would be living in England, in the North of England. So we moved there and, you know, I, I was already in the mood to kind of, considered drums or something else just because of my love of, of music and especially the British invasion at the time. And I, uh, I, I eventually got a set of premier drums. I wanted Ludwig, but they were, they were built in Chicago and my father resisted the cost of buying imported drums. So I found out that, you know, Peter Moon and Jim McCarty, they played premier. So there was no shame in that. And I played in local bands. I played, you know, Yardbird covers. I was 13, still playing pubs and local youth clubs and so on. And, uh, you know, the passion was there. You know, I, I was still listening to music in a broad sense. I didn't just listen to drums. I I really enjoyed, you know, of course, when Elton John and people like that came out, suddenly it was cool to be a piano player. So that was fine, you know. But, you know, working on in a, a little band like that at age 13, covering For Your Love and Heart Full of Soul, Fast forward, you know, 40 years, uh, Terry Brown, who's, I think, the most notable producer for Rush, 
called me out of the blue and said, he's working with a singer-songwriter from the south of France, and would I like to do some string arrangements and and some piano and, and, and acoustic guitar? And I said, sure. So six weeks later, after I delivered it, I was at a garden party, and Terry said, Hugh, I'd like you to meet uh, Jim. Hugh signed Jim McCarty. And I looked at the guy, and I said, you got the same name as the guy from the Yardbirds. And he said, I, I am the, the, that guy from the Yardbirds. So Terry cleverly didn't tell me who I was working for because it would have probably intimidated me. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's been in the fabric of what I do. And, and leaving university when I did um, at the end of my three-year bachelor's degree, I expected I would just continue to carry on with art. And I was asked to join a band that happened to be on the same label as Rush. So you can imagine that just kind of began a whole 40-year dialogue there, which, which was never planned. All the good things aren't, you know, and being called into the office, being asked if, if I would do a, an album cover for Rush um, because they had seen what I had done with Max Webster, another artist on the label, and and my own band. I mean, I was with Ian Thomas for seven years, beautifully gifted singer-songwriter, um, and we were on the same label. And uh, so that that began that 40-year, um, as Neil Peart put it, serving a life sentence as their, their <laughs> art director. So, you know? so, so I so so. I didn't realize you had a background in being a musician yourself, but the thing that's interesting to me, so you, you, you are very good at art initially right in school, but was your interest in art to apply it to music and to, uh, was the first thing you did designed for album covers or was it like you make these pieces and then a musician says, Hey, that's really cool. Can I get it for my album cover? Like I would think there'd be a difference between doing a piece that is specifically for an album cover or an artist versus doing something that, that, that you just want to do. And someone say, Hey, I want to buy that for you from you. And I want to make it my album cover. Well, you know, you refer to buying that. I mean, you know, being an artist, you know, there's obviously that that ugly collision between art and commerce, but it's a necessary part of surviving in sure. any art form. Of course. You know, but I was called, speaking of, you know, I was at the school in, in that town in England, and I didn't know this at the time, but that sandy-haired guy that walked around with a guitar case saying he was going to be a rock star one day turned out to be Davy Stewart, <laughs> and he was one of my 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 peers in school at that time. And years prior to that, a few years prior to that, I discovered that um, Don Airy and uh, Nigel Olson went to that school. So those three guys had a band in the early sixties and I didn't discover this till many years later. Um, I didn't think about doing album covers really. Maybe subconsciously I liked seeing, you know, Sergeant Pepper and I liked seeing um, the, you know, the, even, even rubber soul and so on. I mean, they were great. They, they had impact as I, I would hope album covers have had on most, you know, music lovers as part of part of what we rely on in, in what I do. Um, but I didn't plan to, to the connection between art and, and album covers didn't come until later. But I did get called upon by the headmaster to meet with the the vicar of the local. Um, it's called uh, Saint Nicholas Abbey, and I was called out of my classroom. And if, if you can, you know go back to 64, everybody feared the vicar, uh, sorry, the, the headmaster, you know, why does he want me? So I'm walking down the hall with him with an uncustomary kind of bond. He had his hand around my shoulder and I thought, oh, he's going to tell me bad news or something about somebody in my family. And so I meet the vicar and asked if I could represent the school and they would pay me to do a Christmas card. So 
you know, and enter that lovely alliance between, you know, art and, and, and income. So that, that started that realization that there could be a, a you know, a, a coexistence of the two disciplines, you know, payment and, and art. Um, really seeing, you know, seeing Storm's work, Storm Ferguson's work and the boys at uh, Hypnosis, I mean, that solidified it. When I started seeing the brilliant stuff coming from that company, um, clearly I could see that being something to, to, to pursue. And at that time I was really about 19 or 20. So, um, it was about perfect timing for me because I then joined the band that I was in. It happened to be on the label with the boys in Russian that led to, uh, a visit to the U S I went down to LA to do a painting for, for a quiet riot. And at the same time, um, I was introduced to the producer's ex-wife who happened to manage David Coverdale and Whitesnake. And would I stay on at the house to paint that cover? And so my six to eight weeks in LA turned into about 17 years. So, oh, wow. And it, yeah. You can check in, but you can never leave. <laughs> totally. So, so Hugh, what, yeah. what actually was the very first album cover you did? Was it Max Webster? What, what, what was the very first time you had art that was on an album cover? Oh, boy, you know, I honestly don't recall. I, I I think it must have been probably one of the covers like Calabash or Delights um, for the Ian Thomas band, which was the band I was in. So that led to working on High Class and Borrowed Shoes and a couple of other projects with Max Webster. And then, then Rush took notice and called me in. I actually remember being asked, and I thought, well, you know, they're not Genesis or Supertramp, but yeah, I'll, give, I'll give them a shot. <laughs> not having a, not having a clue where, where it was heading. So, and, so and grateful for that. So was 40 years, what, 40. what was your first Rush album cover? Was it Caressa Steel? Yeah, I, it was Caressa Steel. I did a pencil drawing because I was a huge fan of MC Escher. Um, it was also the first experience. You know, Rush didn't particularly care for or welcome A and R people into the studio. They were very sort of very, um, they had their own inner sanctum to kind of, they were very private and determined to do things their way. And we discovered that you can't, you can't control what happens when you deliver artwork. Uh, the uh, Mercury Records took it upon themselves to add a sepia tone and put a really weird blue kind of balloon type shape around. And, you know, the chromium letter had nothing to do with my style of uh, the pencil drawing. So, that came back. Everybody was a little bit shocked and disappointed. Um, and that sort of led to the band saying, you know, Hugh has complete autonomy. You know, nobody, nobody bothers them. We only, we only deal with Hugh directly. So that was all. I mean, that spoiled me rotten. You know, that, that band gave me great titles. Neil had nothing but wonderful titles to respond to. And I always find titles are the best, you know, point of departure for any good image a good title will lead to a good image usually and uh yeah i mean i was very lucky to be with a band that, that trusted me um you know shared the same loyalties and and uh you know it gave me the freedoms that i had i was going to ask you uh, getting into rush a little bit which of course you're best known for and 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 if i'm not mistaken you've done pretty much all the covers since caress of steel is that correct 
That is right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so how did it work, and how has it worked over all these decades doing their album covers? You mentioned Neil, who, of course, was was the lyricist in the band. Did he was he the guy that uh, would would throw you an album title or a song title? And did the band have a lot of input, or did they say when you say autonomy, did they say, "Hey, Hugh, just come up with something, send it to us," and they said yay or nay? How, how did the process work for each album? interacting with the band and how much input did they have versus what you wanted to do? At first, it was complete autonomy in the sense that I don't think anybody in the band really, you know, everybody in the band appreciates art and collects art. You know, everybody did um, collect art. And, you know, I wasn't aware of that. I, I just knew that I would, my job was to serve the title and to serve the, the theme of an album. But in the, in the very first uh, years when I would get a title like Moving Pictures, I immediately knew what I wanted to do with that. I, and when I would tell that that concept to the band, they would go, really, just guys moving pictures? And and then when they realized that there were certain layer, layers to this, and so on, they trusted me and we did the cover and ended up working out pretty well. Um, usually, um, it was really around signals and so on, and thereafter that Neil and I really kind of, collaborated he by collaborate i mean he would fax me or you know eventually email me lyrics and i would get on the phone and we'd talk about the overriding arc or theme of an album and and never was i micromanaged by anyone i was never given an, an idea to run with it was that was one of the beauties of working with this band they, they just let me do what i wanted to do but when i mentioned you know permanent ways why don't we have a woman with like a like a permanent wave hairdo, you know, walking away from a tidal wave with some idiot in the background waving um, towards her. I remember being kind of told by the band, you have to leave your name at the front desk with the woman. We'll get in touch with you. <laughs> it was, it, it was, it was pretty, it was, they, they dismissed that idea. And Getty called me two days later saying, we love that idea. We're going to go with it. So, it's um, funny, Hugh, let me jump in there. It's funny you bring up Permanent Waves because that was one I wanted to ask you about specifically because that was my first Rush album. Well, maybe I got Hemispheres, but I, I don't remember as a kid. But I always loved the cover of Permanent Waves, and I, I can't really put my finger on it on why, but, you know, beyond the beautiful woman on there. But How old were, how old were you? Well, Permanent Waves was 80, so I would have been uh, fifteen, sixteen, and well, I don't think that I don't think that pretty lady was lost on you. No, no, not I at don't. all. But I'm, but above yeah. and beyond that, there was just something about that cover beyond the the, the pretty lady that that was just I don't know. I, I found it really, uh, I don't know, found it really captivating and interesting, and I couldn't quite figure out. Like it, it got me thinking, you know. And I don't know if maybe that's. Yeah. The best, as an artist, maybe that's the goal. It's the goal, and sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's unwitting. You know, you don't know um, the, the, you know, the. First of all, you're working with a, a band that's very quickly becoming very established. So it's not that I can throw anything at the wall and it'll work. Although Le the Who Live at Leeds would prove otherwise, and so so would Slippery When Wet by Bon Jovi. There's sometimes, or the White Album, which well, actually that's not true. White Album was a brilliant album cover. Um, but every once in a while, you're humbled to realize that it's the music and, and we're doing the packaging, you know, and hopefully that creates self, shelf appeal in the record stores. And, you know, people walk in with their first $15 to buy an album and they've got another $15 
but they don't know what they want to buy, then hopefully that draws you to the cover of, you know, of someone you, that you may not even be aware of. Um, Criminal Ways was not intended to be sort of iconic and, and have any kind of sense of, of uh, history. Um, it was definitely, you know, the beginning of the band's kind of crazier, more whimsical sides, kind of, um, you know, to be, to, to have uh, puns. I mean, the fact that there were several layers of punning, as there was on moving pictures. Right. Even Hold Your Fire had a, even Hold Your Fire had a degree of punning. It was a bit, it was very literal, literally a guy juggling fireballs. But it ended up being, you know, an impactful image. You know, I, I did have an occasion where I did have to sell the band a little, two occasions. One was Signals, and we went through probably a month of deliberation on what that cover should be. It, it eluded all of us. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't think of anything. And eventually when I realized subdivisions, I was a big David Lynch fan at the time. And I, I love the un, sort of the, the unseemly underbelly of, of suburbs. Um, so green lawns occurred to me, the beautiful red Toronto fire hydrant. And then walking on Yorkville in, in Toronto, I walked by the fire station and their mascot Galmation was there. And, that was the the moment of, of realization that, that a signal could be a dog sniffing the base of a fire hydrant. The band didn't take to it immediately, and the manager hated the idea. But Storm Thorgerson featured in his album cover album book that third volume had a had it featured on its own full page. So somebody somewhere, you know, they they got the whimsy. They seemed to enjoy it. So you take chances. I mean, Neil used to say, "Got to deviate from the norm." Yeah, and it became the band's credo to be, to be daring enough. I wouldn't even endorse them having a logo like Aerosmith and, and other bands did, you know, the, the management wanted a logo, but I thought, you know, Pink Floyd doesn't have a logo. Um, a lot of people don't. It's often about the concept and as long as the band's name is visible. So I, I selfishly didn't want a third of my cover to be eclipsed by a logo. So I, it was, it was, for two reasons. One, I wanted the concept to, to speak to the, the band's um, project. And I want, yeah, I wanted more canvas for myself. <laughs> that, that's a really interesting point, Hugh. And I didn't think of that until you just said it. I mean, Rush yeah. has certainly had things that you would identify as a logo, certain fonts, certainly the, the, the way the band's name is spelled on the first record. First record, which you didn't yeah. do, was nothing but their logo at that time, which has been used since. But there have been certain fonts and stuff for Rush's logo, but they never really did have, uh, in terms of R-U-S-H, a, a certain, uh, where so many bands had a certain defined logo. It, it really did float in a way, and that probably gave you a lot of uh, ability to, to incorporate Rush, the name of the band, into whatever you were doing with the covers. Yeah, incorporate it, or at least serve the art somehow you know right i mean i didn't I didn't, have, I didn't have a clue after the dog and the green it was astroturf we photographed that on the roof of deborah samuel's building she was the photographer on that project as she was on moving pictures as well a brilliant a brilliant photographer and fun to work with and uh yeah those were some good years um but you know once you once you have a finished image it then becomes a question of how do you how do you populate that image with the with illegible though that was we pushed the the envelope a little bit on signals rush was probably probably at its least legible on that album um because it was i had painted that with a chinese paintbrush on 
rice paper about you know fifty times before I got the one I wanted. But um, yeah, it, it, you're right. It, it it was a great going back to what I said earlier, having the freedoms of of that band's endorsement of, of change and diverse diversity just meant that that we didn't have to think about how we're going to incorporate the logo into the cover. Right. Like I, like I did, like I did on, say, get a grip where I I knew I had to have it on there somewhere. So I photographed a local cow here in Indiana, actually, and, and uh, rendered the brand on the hip of the cow. So there are times when you can make the logo as part of the art. So it's not just floating above the art, but it's incorporated into the art. Yeah, I didn't even realize that you did Aerosmith get a grip until I was uh, looking over your stuff for for this uh, conversation. And I want to get to that a few other bands in a second. But staying with Rush for a moment, I want to ask you about two covers. And to the real hardcore Rush fans, these are considered to be like, you know, the the epic progressive rock masterpieces, if you will. But a farewell to Kings. Uh, I remember uh, when I was a kid. I could only, a lot of the music I got was that I would, you know, I grew up in New Jersey, still live in New Jersey, and on the beach, they would have these stands, and you put a quarter on a number, and if the number would come up, you could pick a record uh, if you won. And you couldn't listen to the records, of course. They just had all the albums up on a wall, and if your number came up, you had to pick which one you wanted. So uh, I picked so many records off the wall just from the album covers because I had no other criteria. I, I couldn't sample the music. And I, I right. there were a lot of records like Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell comes to mind where I was like, oh, that looks cool. Three Angels Smoking, I'll take that. Maybe the music's good. <laughs> and uh, I did that with The Farewell to Kings, I recall, because I can't remember the timeline with Rush, but I do remember being struck by that cover. And tell right. me about tell me about that cover because – even looking at it now, I've got it up on my computer. Is that a painting? Is that a photo? Is that a model? Is that paint over? Uh, is that paint over a photo? What What is a? Fa- tell me about a farewell to Kings. Well, it's not as complicated, I and mean, I was already enamored of the way um, hypnosis would do compositing. You know, they would, they would, though they didn't always composite. You know, uh, "Wish You Were Here" was was. Uh, Two guys shaking hands on a, a nice blanched white Burbank back lot, um, and a, you know a pyro a pyro person on hand <laughs> to to light the guys back on fire. But in that instance, I wanted to go to Lindisfarne, which is in off the north coast of England, to the old priory, the old ruins of the the, the monastery, and I wanted to have a throne and a king. And I, you know, I wanted to do it. Um, the way Floyd did it, well, the budgets weren't there yet. They were coming, but they weren't there yet. So we had to sort of think on our feet. And um, Bobby, you know, my friend Bobby, who I grew up with, um, who also be kindly dropped his drawers for the Starman um, for me, and also donned the bowler hat for Hemispheres. Um, and he was one of the guys in the red jumpsuit in the foreground of moving pictures. Um so those were Bobby so, so he, wait, let me stop you there. So your friend yeah. is those images on those album covers? Yeah, yeah. He he's the the lead mover in the front, front left of moving pictures. He wore the Magritte outfit on the brain in hemispheres. Um and for for the for the star man, Neil said it's 
you know, it's the theme is the evil star of the, you know, the Federation, the red star of the Federation represented all the, all things oppressive, you know, anti-creativity, anti-freedoms. And the hero of the story was, was obviously resisting that, that oppression. And I thought in the purest form, that hero could stand in jeans and a t-shirt and it would just look kind of, you know, okay. I thought, no, let's keep it really pure. So the purity of creativity was sort of the metaphor there was, you know, drop your drawers, Bob, you're doing this. We're going to do a shot from the back. And it, it was never intended to be the, you know, the lifelong, you know, playboy bunny of Rush or the, <laughs> the, the thumb, you know, the thumbprint for Rush. It was unwitting that that became so, so ingrained in the, in the, in the legacy of that band. But anyway, Bobby, Bobby, um, he was an antique dealer as well. He would travel into the northern states of Pennsylvania and go through Buffalo. And he saw a beautiful uh, demolition site that was, you know, he'd seen it just days before that. And so we went across the border. We didn't tell the, we just said we we're students. I mean, we had a throne and we had my the guitar player, Josh, um, who was the skinniest man I'd ever known, um, was perfect for the, for the, uh, for the puppet a makeup person was with us. Um, and we had a throne in the back, and we just told the customs officer that we're just going down to do a photo shoot at a, at a demolition site. And he didn't question it. We we did this kamikaze, you know, guerrilla photo shoot. No, no, no permits or anything. We just did the shot. It, it wasn't what I had in mind by going to the north of England and standing, you know, in the presence of truly, you know, the ruins of a castle, sort of. But it, it, it served the project. It seemed to seemed to survive. And I'm pre- I appreciate you noticing it and it having some impact on your life when you saw it. So so just just to be clear, the 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 person sitting in the chair, um yeah. that that's actually a photo or a photo painted on or you had somebody pose and tell me what that actually is. Like is, is Well that that that's Josh. Very that that, that was Josh. Um, I created a, a prosthetic knee so it looked like a ball and socket joint. You know, we tore the leotard so the knee looked com- convincingly um, like a joint in a marionette or a puppet. It was the whole the whole idea was farewell to kings. So it, 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 the king became kind of a um, figurehead, but more of a mascot to past royalty. You know, uh, kings and queens aren't quite as hands on as Henry VIII and and past kings were, but um, the fact that that kings and queens have kind of become uh, the face of royalty, um, and it was kind of—I don't know if it's a dying circumstance, but you know, farewell to kings. It occurred to me that the puppet king was the good, was the right vehicle for that metaphor. So, um, so it's a staged—it's a staged photo, is what you're saying? Yeah, it was a staged photo, and. The hands. I mean, in the post, I would just just um, disjoint the hands from the wrists so that they looked also like marionette's hands. And I added the strings, and I I cut in a different sky and a different background so that it it looked. It's also a testament to the fact that we were tearing down history. You know, buildings were being demolished. Beautiful classical buildings were being demolished that should have been protected by historical societies. So. There were some layers developing there in, in the way we, we I say we, the way Rush um, graphics were emerging, you know, the whole idea that we were saying goodbye to the 
the, you know, the, the estates was a testament to the farewell to kings. The fact that royalty was sort of was becoming more and more uh, pale by comparison to past powers, you know, from the throne. Yeah, it's 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 still it, it's still really interesting to look at. And the other one I was going to ask you about, which you touched on before, because you said it's the your your friend that's your friend as well in the hat on on hemispheres. But of course, yeah. such an iconic image, and uh, the 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 same. There's a playoff somewhere in hemispheres. Is is there not from twenty one twelve? In other words, with with the guy that's on both the guy that's on hemispheres, the same guy that's. If I'm not mistaken, I have it, it right. Twenty one twelve in the back. Yeah. Well, twenty one twelve Starman was just that. It was a, it was a an interpretation of that lyric and of that that epic sort of saga about about that hero defying the Red Star of the Federation. That had its own place. Um, it was never intended that the Rush um, lore or the Rush fans would would discuss. Of course. Bobby's back was to us in that Starman, so we would never associate him with the man on the on the brain. But um, that was that that image was born of Neil and I talking about how the brain is, you know, we have a right brain and a left brain. We have a side that is more more concerned with Dionysius, you know, and and, and Apollo, you know, um, intellect and and emotion, you know. So we. We considered the dancer the emotional side of the brain, and we considered the the more stoic appearance of the Magritte character, or British commuter businessman from London. You know, however you want to interpret him, he was the more you know buttoned up intellectual side of the brain. So that that was really what that was supposed to depict. Um, I did go to Toronto University to find a human brain, and I was offered a human brain, and I actually didn't like the look of it. It, it was just Apart from the fact that I didn't want to handle it, um, so I, I did. I did find and very heavily retouched a great model of a brain. And again, we did this all in what, a, a process called dye transfer and emotion stripping. All the components were stripped together, photographed separately, stripped together, and then I would go into the final seven hundred and fifty dollar print and start bleaching and dyeing and making the, hopefully making the image an improbable reality and seamless so that it appeared that it might actually be happening. You know, you know, Hugh, I'm, I'm interested too, because, uh, you know, I worked in the music industry on the label side for a few years early in my career. And I know that, well, wait, 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 wait. I, I was going to say on that point, I, you did an I, album I cover. Your, well, I did, I did an album cover, but I also, I remember typesetting your name along with Spencer's. Um, and you were the executive producer on Cycle of the Moon by Prophet. Exactly right. Yes, that's the yeah. one I was going to bring up. You did an album cover for us for a band that I signed that unfortunately didn't uh, didn't quite make it, but uh, real good melodic rock yeah. band. And yeah, you did a brilliant cover for a record for, again, for the audience, Prophet, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, and Cycle yeah. of the Moon, which uh, brilliant concept you came up with that cover. Just the play off the name is just fantastic. Well, Again, if that had come to me from Rush, Cycle of the Moon, there's every probability I would have done that cover for Rush because it speaks to that part of it speaks to how I think about and interpret titles. Um, you know, there's some whimsy in there, and there's some kind of intentional, almost glib humor, Cycle of the Moon. But that was done. I built a large sort of six foot square model of the moon in the studio. I created that. 
using uh, Fuller's Earth, which is crushed walnut shells. And uh, I worked with Niels Lozauer, who's a, a dear friend of mine in in the in uh, Los Angeles during my years there. Sure. And uh, yeah, and uh, we worked in his studio. It wasn't his norm to shoot things like this, but he liked working with me, and I liked we we, we worked well together. Um, he shot bands more than anything. He, he was no famous for shooting bands, and everybody who's anybody he photographed. But we, I built that in his studio and then photographed the, the bicycle separately. And then, again, in the post, I had the bicycle stripped into the photo and then cast the shadows. And, yeah. So, there's but, yeah. A, you know, I could talk to you about Rush forever, but I want to jump around to a couple other bands and then a couple sure. other things, and I'll, then, then I'll let you run. But um, I had no idea you did Aerosmith Get a Grip until we started talking about it, and you touched on that on that cover um, you've done a ton for Dream Theater, which makes a lot of sense given that they are, um, yeah. you know, they're pretty much descendants of Rush. So it makes sense that they would reach out to you. Uh, but I also, one, one of, I didn't realize, I don't know how this escaped me, but you did the huge Whitesnake album, which is generally just referred to as 87, Still the Night and all of that. And um, tell, tell me about that because I'm curious there was a tremendous, as, as many people know about the history of that particular record, there was a tremendous amount of upheaval around that time where the, the guys that actually made the record were let go before the record came out. And it was a transitional thing for David. And it was just, although it's a gargantuan record, it was a really, really tough time for them in terms of personnel and dealing with lineup changes. Do you do you get caught up in any of that as an artist? In other words, like if you want to incorporate images of the band or something like that, and they're saying, hold on, we're going to change the band <laughs> instead of the one that made this record, it's going to be different guys. Like, is that why the cover ends up just being basically like a seal like that, like a an emblem? Or no. Tell me about that. No. Well, no, that... I, first of all, I wasn't aware until years later that David had a, a, an in, an inclination to kind of um, want new blood, you know, to put it lightly in his band. He would he would change things up, and I, I'm sure that served him well. He's had some remarkable guitar players and people work with him. But I was unaware of the politics, to be honest with you. I, I had met, um, after doing Quiet Riot, that painting I referred to earlier, um, when I was living in that house in L.A., where I was given a convertible Mustang and I thought I could get used to this. That's, that's the beginnings of my interest in LA being able to work in that city. Well, Spencer introduced me to Trudy Green, who was managing David at the time. Would I like to go to the Mondrian hotel and meet with David? And that's sure. Yeah. Not having a clue really. I knew a little bit about deep purple and I knew, um, about, uh, about his history, but I had no idea that he had, the voice from, from God, you know, <laughs> I had no idea who he was. And I went to his room and he came to the door with a, a bathrobe on and a towel on his head. And, you know, we talked for a while and then he fired up some tracks and started singing to me in the room. Literally, there was no vocal track on. He just started singing and I was blown away. I was just, and not only that, I felt very privileged. So we met several times and his voice, I mean, he, he has a voice like Richard Burton. He's got a very, a deep voice and a very kind of regal voice. And immediately I, I thought of the British heraldry side of him and you know the, the pomp and circumstances of, 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 of White Snake. And I thought, and it was really an accident, and, and, and I'm delighted to say it was a fairly heavily emulated 
um, style that came out in the form. Other covers came out down the road that kind of had that look, which I was grateful for because obviously um, emulation is a, a, a form of flattery. But just knowing that he was very English and that we could do something like a medallion or some kind of coat of arms like that, it it, it was a no-brainer. And that it was a painting was not necessarily um, the only approach I could have taken, but it's how I did approach um, that particular cover. Um, and it was mostly born of the fact that David's character just seemed so terribly British, you know, and I thought the cover should have that sense of... of, of heraldry and richness yeah um again i i know that i there are a ton of album covers i could talk to you about in the interest of time of course i can't do them all there's a ton on dream theater there's a ton on so many bands i would uh, definitely direct my audience to go to hughsime.com to learn more that's uh, last name spelled s-y-m-e but a couple of specifics i do want to ask you about um i didn't realize as well well i did know you did euthanasia so by Megadeth, which is also an incredibly striking image, and again playing off the title of the record. Tell me a little bit about that piece. Well, I, uh, my then wife and my daughter, who was eight months old, my first daughter, who was eight months old at the time, we were in in L.A. during the Northridge quake, and we, we're not native Angelinos, and we didn't we didn't kind of take it lightly. <laughs> I didn't, anyways. I would barely take my shoes off. And I barely put my daughter down after that night. Um, so staying there just seemed to be, uh, uh, it just seemed to be an impossibility. We would already bought a home. My, my ex um, is from Indiana. I met her in New York. She was modeling in New York at the time. And we bought a home in, in Indiana. We would spend Christmas in the summertime here. But after that earthquake, we just headed back. And one of the first calls I got was from John Kalodner. Um, and would I meet him at Burbank Airport to go up and see Tesla in, in San Francisco? And I said, well, I'm actually, I didn't even confess that I had moved. I just said, I'm at my studio in Indiana, um, somewhat implying that I had two studios. <laughs> but just he didn't care. He just told his secretary, Leslie, to send me a ticket. So they FedExed me a ticket. I met him. And from that point forward, because the world was getting smaller and email was emerging, um, you know, FedEx email, all of that served my career pretty well. Um, but I did have the task in the very parochial Midwest um, to find 35 babies. So I, I started making inquiries, and one thing led to another. In fact, the, the third baby from the left is my daughter, Hadley. Um, so, yeah, we, we cast things differently. I was in L.A. where I had you know, Western costume, which was a huge, huge facility for costumes. You know, I had to make do with things like the Muncie Civic Theater and what they had in their attic, you know. So I had to be resourceful, but it worked out well. Even the woman hanging the babies was the ticket lady. She was 85 at the time. Wow. Um, Betty was her. Yeah, she was the ticket lady at the Muncie Civic Theater. So, you know, as long as you look at the, you know, you don't, you don't have to look for notable people, you know. We, we almost had Dennis Hopper juggling for the for the hold your fire, but our schedules kind of fell apart. But, you know, every <laughs> once in a, every once in a while, you want someone notable. But you know, Stanley, he was doing uh, he was a, an actor at the time doing soap operas and so on. He stepped in, so it, it's all down to the concept. And and Betty was a treat. She 
I told her, well, you're hanging babies. And you're doing what? I said, just <laughs> trust me. <laughs> so it, it was, you know, and I, and I also had to sort of hasten to find a photographer that I could work with too. And, you know, if I was ever going to do any studio shoots, and I did, I found a photographer who's known mostly for product um, and pretty staid kind of, uh, you know, day-to-day kind of grunt work. So out of nowhere, this guy comes back from L.A. and is bringing jobs like like uh, Tess for Echo and, you know, Iron Maiden's uh, X Factor. You know, so I'm, I, I sculpted the... Uh, the, the eviscerated torso for X Factor. And well, I want to I want to jump in. I want to jump in there because that's the next one I wanted to hit you with, and I wanted to make sure I asked <laughs> okay, you about yeah. the Iron Maiden album yeah, yeah. X Factor. Although you know, not a not a huge uh, at that point, Bruce Dickinson wasn't in the band, so they struggled a bit during that period. However, that cover, yeah. I think, what's really interesting. Anybody that knows anything about Maiden is they're like you're. For Rush, you're their guy. Hugh Syme is synonymous with Rush. The guy that was always synonymous with Iron Maiden is an artist named Derek Riggs who did all of their classic oh, covers. How did it come to be that you got called to do an Iron Maiden record? That had to be a, a that was a huge break for them to move away from Derek Riggs. Well, in the same fashion that uh, Vic Rattlehead was also illustrated for years um, for Megadeth, right? That they would. Do- that they would sort of just decide to tilt the mirror away from that and 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 have this emaciated sort of um, man floating in a cell for countdown to extinction. No, they took a chance and the fans embraced it. They loved it, um, and that led to euthanasia. And it seemed to work. You know, they they reverted back to Vic. I think on subsequent albums, but. Um, when Iron Maiden asked that of me, they sort of they alluded to how Megadeth had had you know moved away from the expected, and they thought that even though Eddie should be in there, could we make it look more visceral and more real and more? And so I thought the only way to do this is to is to create Eddie. So that's what we did. Um, you know, it's it's always a gamble. I was happy to do it. I was tasked with the. I got a call from Merck Mercurianus to to um, get involved with that, and, and got you know very fortunate to go to England to finish the post work and hang out with the boys. You know, every night they would come and see the progress on the artwork, and uh, then we would go drink and drink and drink. <laughs> um, it, it was a good it was a good two weeks in London to, to say that. Um, but, you know, it was a treat to work with them. But I know the pushback from the fans was, it's a bit like, you know, if if Rush were to deviate from me, um, I have a sense that there would be, a, a you know, a pushback and an outcry of, of disloyalty, you know, because fans become very passionate about all aspects of a band's, um, you know, life and, and, and who they are. So it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't lost on me that, that some people considered Eddie, you know, as much as some people applauded the accomplishment, some people didn't like it deviating from the, the Derek Riggs look. And he, he's a brilliant illustrator, and I think, I think, you know, then reverting to that again was smart for their career. 
Right. You know, I what I was what I, what I was saying to you earlier when I started telling you about how I used to work at a label and I knew you know how this process worked to some degree. My recollection, it's been a, a long time, but my recollection was that a lot of times you had to start figuring out some and give an artist or whoever was doing the artwork some uh, to get started often before the album was actually done. And I'm curious uh, for you, was it important? When you were commissioned to do an album cover, was it important for you to like the band, know the band, hear the music, or were you okay with just getting a title, or did some people just turn you loose and say, hey, just give us something cool and we'll make it work? I mean, how much you know, how much did you as the artist rely on, on input from whatever you were working on as far as uh, the music, having to hear it, or anything like that? I, I think because I was so spoiled with Rush, and so trusted by them, and it just sort of set up a a, a mode, you know, a, a way that I like to work. Um, I was never, I don't think I was ever perceived as being presumptuous or, you know, remote. Though I will be frank and say I wasn't someone to invite um, concepts from a band. I would certainly want to hear their title, and I would always welcome reading their lyrics because it's from it's from their words and from the way they think that you harvest a, a good image, you know, but that's how I would put it to the band. You know, I would love, and, and yes, when I could hear the music that was, you know, sometimes I would, especially in LA, I'd be invited to the studio and hang out with the musicians, which is something we do miss. You know, I miss that immensely. Um, and, and I was able to do that with some really remarkable people during that 16, 17 years in LA. But to your question, did I have to hear the music? Not really. I didn't always hear Russia's music. It was it was very much um, the title that became my point of departure and my, my my you know my springboard for for conceptualizing. Um, so no, the music wasn't all. And in fact, I, I kind of made a point, especially with Rush, and it would seem the habit and and, and the 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 style kind of stuck, and people didn't mind the fact that I was giving them something a bit unexpected. Um, Rush never stood still, you know, they just didn't, you know, their, their images were all over the map and it afforded me a lot of latitude to indulge, but also to bring something new to each project. And I tried to do the same thing with, you know, and bust a nut for, um, for Tesla. I mean, I love don't think that, they expected love that to, record. Yeah. Those guys you know, are good friends. Example of, yeah. Thank you. And then cherry pie for warrant. I mean, I don't think they expected me to go where I did with those concepts, but um, again, looking back, it seemed to serve everybody well, and, and it, it allowed me to have you know fun, which is something again I'm so grateful for all these years later. You know. Oh yeah, um, I mean they're iconic images. I mean they really are, and these are records. When you talk about a record like Cherry Pie, which you did, or the first, or the uh, White Snake '87, or any, or Get a Grip, or even the Megadeth records that back, you know. I mean, that's one of the things, I mean, not to sound like an old, old guy here, but uh, I really, really, and, and you must appreciate, I would think, Hugh, that the, there's a bit of a return to vinyl because I do miss greatly the, uh, the, the images, you know, that the, the cover of an album was so important. And I think that got lost a little bit when everybody was just looking at things on their phone and clicking and, and what have you. I, 
as a music fan, I still love CDs as my as my favorite format. But what I do appreciate about vinyl, and I'm sure is super important to you with the with the yeah. uh, somewhat somewhat comeback of it, is now that the now the the artwork is being properly represented again and having some importance. Well, I, I, it's absolutely true. But I've also um, tried to stay nimble and stay flexible when the 12 inch square was banished. And it became the five-inch square just to round up from the four and three quarters that it really was. The CD booklet was, you know, a bit of a deflation. It was a come down from that big canvas. But at the same time with my clients, you know, some record companies would say, yeah, you can't have color inside the CD booklet. You know, you get, you get eight pages maximum. Well, Rush would do 24 pages or 32 pages and Dream Theater, the same thing. So... And, and, and several of the projects that I've worked on, you know, even the Megadeth Euthanasia project had tons of pages inside. In fact, David went to uh, Tommy Steele at Capitol and said, I, he was the one that kind of started the process. He said, I want an image for every song. Of course, I was delighted because it meant I could interpret the, the lyrics throughout the book. So while they did close the door on the 12-inch square of the album cover, they opened the window of these booklets. That's that a great me- point. That Hugh, that's a yeah. great point that I never thought of because the transition from vinyl to CD that opened up a whole other world for you. Where even though the cover image is a little smaller, now you got some pages anywhere from twelve to twenty-four or whatever, where you can do additional images and 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 flesh out further the concept of the album cover. That I never thought about that, but yeah, that would have been a great benefit to CD as an artist. Yeah, and it's also kept kept it fun. You know, it's kept it challenging. Um, even even when Rush disbanded at the pinnacle of their career, you know, everybody kind of heaves a, a sigh naturally and said, okay, now what? Well, the, the, it's the gift that keeps on giving. Not, it wasn't long after their, their retirement that, that the label uh, came to me and said, we're going to start celebrating every 40th, every, every album at its 40th anniversary. And right. so now we're doing, we're doing these box sets that are, you know, much more um, extravagant and, and indulgent, frankly. But it allows me to go back, much like I would do with a CD book. It allows me to go back and, to my shame, sometimes read Neil's lyrics carefully for the first time and or re-familiarize myself with lyrics and bring my today's skill set to the party where I could sort of say, oh, I... This is how I would treat Tom Sawyer today. This is how I would treat Red Barchetta or whatever, you know. So it has been a um, gratifying experience that Rush isn't out of my life yet, you know. No, I don't think Rush will be out of anyone's life ever that's a fan because it's just – It'll endure, and the fans are way too passionate. And uh, these reissues, you know, I wanted to ask you about that real quickly because the 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 reissues that you talk about that continue to come from Rush, I have some of them, and you you did revised album covers on all of them. Whose decision was that to to not go with the original cover and to do a different cover on the reissue, even though the core album inside is the same? Um, I I think you know, like I said, the selfish, indulgent art director that I am was probably it probably came from me, but it seemed to stick. You know, when the label saw it, they thought, yeah, that's that's going to keep it fresh. That's going to keep it unique, and it also you know it it moves away from the potential of of a 
you know, being perceived as yet another cash grab or a, another re, another incarnation of something. When in fact, they would find choice video and, and remix the, the, the live performance. And there would be real value inside the box. It wasn't just reissues, you know. Um, and then, of course, the artwork in the, these books are 44 pages long. Um, there's, there's an essay, there's, there's, there's band photos from that era, and there's also a gallery of images, which, again, is, is why I do what I do and continue to do it. I love, I love what I do. Well, I think it also sent a message because Rush, Rush fans, Rush has always set a, cert, a certain standard of quality and class to what they've done. I've always felt that way. Yeah. I mean, they've always been a cut above, and I think that's one of the reasons why the fans are so passionate is this just the way they go about their business, the people they are. I'm lucky enough to know Getty and Alex and uh, – and and I yeah. and I'm and you know I did I did meet and interview Neil once, but there, there's just a certain class about what Rush does, and I think that by doing uh, revisions of the album covers, not only did it do you have all that stuff inside, but it also sent a message, as you said, to people buying like, hey, we really put something into this. This is not just us throwing a remastered sticker on an old record and tossing it out and yeah. asking you to buy it again. It sent a message that there was really some care put into this. Well, as you know, I mean, the band really, they would do everything from film themselves as characters, like the butcher, the cop, and, yeah. you know, they, they spent a lot of energy and time, you know, and then they, that's what they enjoyed about, about their, their craft. It, it went well beyond just the music. I mean, they, they got involved with Howard Ungerleiter on how the lighting would develop. Um, um, even, even, you know, when Neil and I looked at the first, tour book um, off the presses. Well, not off the press. It was a, it was a press proof. He flicked the papers. That it's, paper feels like, like Time magazine. It's not thick enough. So whether it cost the band more or not, he wanted thicker and nicer paper. And so did I. But management would typically sort of say, well, is that, an, is that wise? They didn't care. They said that's what they want. And that, to your point, they really did give back to the fans. Um, and yet it also gave them a chance to do, I mean, Getty loves film and production and, you know, so getting involved in that kind of thing, you know, even the photos that Andrew and I did, I don't know if you ever saw um, my, I'll send them to you after this interview if you haven't seen them, but we did a portrait of Neil as Bubba in his diner and one of Alex doing his best Amy Winehouse on the floor of the kitchen <laughs> um, with, you know, with, you know, fishnet nylons and leopard pumps so, you know, these guys never stop thinking outside the box. Hugh, uh, just a couple more things. Uh, again, I, I keep going back to Rush, but no, obviously no, no. You're, hey. you're so synonymous with Rush. Um, you can edit. You can edit this comment out. There's no hurry here. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm I'm I, I, I'm free to talk to you, and I don't mean this to sound like I don't want to hang up. I just want you to be you know clear that if you want to kind of go, if your time allows, we can go. Whenever you're you're bored, you can just let no, me know. no, no. I appreciate it, but I I only have a certain amount of time in the show, unfortunately. But I do. Oh, I that's do, true. <laughs> yeah, it's a radio show, so I only have a certain amount of time. But I do want to ask you about photography, which you touched on. Like you mentioned, you use Lowe's on something, and I know that you've incorporated photographers in what you do. But did you yourself take photos? And where I'm going is when I think of the timeline of Rush albums. All the world's a stage. It was just a photo of an empty stage. 
And did you yeah. did you do that photo, or did you just commission somebody, or were you involved in that? Was that your idea? Well, I I, I, I befriended people through my career, and, and a lot of the stuff I, I I photographed, you know, a lot of you know um, things like the Inukshuk, you know. Neil sent me a postcard from the Arctic or from the Yukon Territories when they were touring, and he found this postcard of this Inuit sculpture, which is called the Inukshuk. And I thought, well, I'll find that in stock photography somewhere. I'll, I'll I can't use this dog-eared um, postcard that's traveled all the way from the Northwest. Um, so I looked and looked, and I couldn't find anything. So I ended up sculpting that um, out of florist foam and painting it, and texturizing it, so it looked like limestone. But photographing it from a low angle and giving it that sense of, of scale was was tasked on me. Um, a lot of times I'll just take care of things like that myself. Um, fire hydrants for the current, uh, well, the current, um, re the, the box set for signals, you know, things like that. I took care of, um, you know, the, the Dalmatians I photographed, um, you know, as often as I can, I, 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 you know, a lot of it isn't requiring a, a studio session. Um, having said that, when we did the, uh, Folger Fire, that was that, that city that spread inside that gatefold. That city is actually six feet wide. It was built in the studio um, and painted by um, Scott Alexander and myself. And um, Glenn Wexler, who was the photographer on that project, um, we lit it for about five days. We didn't use flash. We used about seven minimal, which is like small film you know, spotlights that can be each controlled from faders on a, on a board. So we actually, we lit the set. So in, in cases like that, we would, we would definitely work. I would collaborate with photographers and, and whenever I need critical lighting, I would much prefer to have someone who's a, the craftsman on call for those things. So, so, so did you take the photo that is all the world's a stage? No, that was uh, Yoshi Inouye. He was a uh, okay. uh, Japanese yeah, no, that was just done from the balcony in Massey Hall. So that was done yeah, actually was, at the show that they played, and it was just a shot before they put the crowd in and the band was on the stage. Yeah, I think it was even, I think they were set up the day before doing dress rehearsal. So yeah, we had we had access to the stage. And then the second Rush album, Exit Stage Left, that, that was live, becomes a, a completely different thing because that was really... I thought very elaborate at at its time in terms of, I remember I had a huge poster for, for the promo poster for that record. And of course, all those images and the woman and the curtain and all of that have become so iconic as well. What were your, so very, very different imagery going from all the world's a stage to exit stage left. How did, when when they started to, when they put together the second live record, uh, where did those ideas come from the band or you to, to go in that direction? Well, both of us, I and mean, I, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to bring back, like, do a cameo of all the characters, including the white owl from Fly By Night, and, um, you know, even having the word Rush, which was designed by some illustrator on their very first album, that that appeared, I believe, on the road case itself in the shot. Right. But Bobby came back with the Madrid character, Paula Turnbull, who had already moved from permanent ways to being a very successful model in Paris and other parts of the world happened to be in Toronto and Deborah knew Paula, Deborah photographed. She was the same photographer that worked with me on, uh, on moving pictures, Deborah. We went into uh, an abandoned 
theater, which was condemned, actually. We didn't have the right to be in there, but we got someone to give us some keys. So we went in there. It was a dusty, cold shoot. There was no there was no trailer. There was no craft table. It was just a, another one of those guerrilla shoots. We set everything up and uh, photographed it. Uh, there was no curtain, so Paula pretended to pull back the curtain, and I photographed the curtain later and then stripped that in. The crowd was from, I, I think, Buffalo, but it was, a, it, was a, it was a crowd from one of their shows. So the view from backstage to the crowd was, was again, built in the post as a, as a composite of several photographs. Yeah, it's really, really uh, just, just iconic stuff. All right, so, Hugh, the impossible sure. questions here. Um, and I know these are probably all like your children, but do you have a favorite? We'll start with Rush. Do you have a favorite Rush album cover personally? It's a tricky one because, um, you know, when I kind of said to the boys, let's do a nut and a bolt for counterparts, um, they absolutely, you know, Neil said, I can never sell that to the boys. And it ended up being one of their best selling t shirts. And Neil and I had a good two and a half months just going back and forth with all the options we would have for counterparts like salt and pepper, tortoise and hare, yin and yang, you know, slap and tickle, uh, ribbed and lubricated. <laughs> we, came, <laughs> we came up, we, we, we came up with every permutation of counterparts so much so that did we enjoy the process. We built a, a poster that went inside the package. So when you open the package up, you would see all these, these things that we couldn't let go. And we even built a, a, a piece that's, we now call the prayer, but it was just a kind of it looked like a manuscript from from the 12th century, which has all of those pairings in there. Um, but you know that cover, as simple as it is, I really like that cover. Signals I like a lot. My father was ill and passed away during my painting um, Power of Windows, and I really enjoy that cover on its own. But it also has you know music like imagery is is muscle memory it's part of the fabric it's, it's part of who we are and you remember what you were doing when you heard sergeant pepper for the first time you remember what you're doing when you heard the mamas and papas california dreaming or whatever it it all has a place so when i look at power windows i can't i can't disassociate the fact that that was a pretty pretty uh you know pretty heavy time in my life so it, it has a place a special place um technically speaking there's things I've done that, you know, I like conceptually, but technically, you know, we grow, you know. Um, Neil used to joke and say, you know, I, I don't know where these kimonos and handlebar mustaches and boots came from, but <laughs> I wish they would go. I, I wish they would go away or I wish I could. I, I wish I could have played that better. Well, there are covers that I, I can certainly say I wish I could have done that better. I wish I could have done that today, which is why these box sets are pretty cool, because it allows me to revisit with today's skill set, um, as I was saying, just to, to bring something new to the party, but it's hard to pick. Like you're, you're right. It's like children, you know? Well, well, um, the guy, the guys, the guys in the band in rush would be the first to tell you that they historically were very fashion challenged, which I can certainly relate to too. Cause it's never been a, I've always <laughs> been a very simple jeans and t-shirt guy, but even then, you know, at the height of image and all of that videos, they had so many different looks and they were trying to figure it out. Did you ever consult on that? Like, did you, did you uh, have any input on the photo on the back of 2112 and the way they're dressed? No, of course not. I mean, you, you, you know, you're, 
when you pierce the, the veil of that inner sanctum known as Rush, you know, you would never deign to say, you know, why don't you wear this? I mean, it's not, I wouldn't even dream to sort of suggest that. And it was so so much a part of what, and, and as my career pr- progressed, I would never go to a, a shoot or meet with a band and discuss their wardrobe. They had their own identity, you know. They had their own male vanity, well established before I met them. Um, so, you know, however they wanted to be, you know, if I showed up at a session with Niels Lozauer and the band walked in, I'd go, okay, that's that's how you look live, you know. It's, right. cool. um, it's not part of what I do, but it's certainly... I will make suggestions like let's keep the background dark. We have to drop some type in there. That's where art direction comes into play. Let's make sure that when we photograph this, there's a negative space to, to put the barcode and the track list and so on. So you, you think about the composition, but you certainly don't, you know, delve into their, you know, you know, their wardrobe. Right. Right. And the other question would be outside of rush, as we touched on, and we didn't even get into nearly all of them, of course, there's not time for that, but there's uh, a ton of albums you've done for other artists. We mentioned Maiden, Dream Theater, Queensryche, Tesla. You did the Kiss album, Revenge, Whitesnake, on and on and on. Many, many others. Is there is there a non-Rush album cover that is significant to you that maybe not necessarily favorite because I know it's hard for you to pick because you've done so many, but is there one that really jumps out at you that, that uh, a personal favorite, at least at this moment, that wasn't Rush that you did? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm proud of not only because, ha- as you as you know, when you do, you know, when a band does a song and they don't always know that song is going to catch fire and goes, you know, go go where it goes. But I'm proud of what happened after the painting I did for White Snake. That that's pretty cool. Um, and I'm and I and I like that I could continue to be, you know, improbable and a little bit absurd. You know, euthanasia was was. It frankly was an image that I'd wanted to do well before I met the band when I heard the title and that it was being spelt Y-O-U-T-H as opposed to the mercy killing spelling. Um, I thought euthanasia. Well, I came to their studio in Arizona and we talked and I intentionally gave two lame ideas as my first ideas, hoping that I could lead them to, to water when I brought up the idea of euthanasia. That's when I said what does this mean? Are we are, are we talking about the fact that we, the caretakers of the, of the planet, are, are doing a poor job of of, of take, you know leaving something for our for our children and our children's children? Like we're we're hanging up our 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 children out to dry. And they said, Yeah, yeah, that's what we mean. I said, Well, why don't we do that? Why don't we hang them out to dry? So, in some instances, I I you know intentionally. Uh, bring concepts into play when I've already got them in my mind. That one happened to be one I wanted to do literally eight, ten years prior to, you know, finding a, an occasion to uh, to create it. But I like that cover. I think that's a pretty cool cover. Um, you know, honestly, you, you lose track. Um, <laughs> you lose track of, of all the ones you do. Um, yeah. I, I thought X Factor was a real fun and big undertaking. Moving pictures ended up being a nice, you know, permanent way. They're, they, they all have a place in my in my heart. But picking, you know, picking a favorite outside of the rush, I would say somewhere somewhere between White Snake and and Euthanasia, mm. um, and and Dream Theater. A lot of what I do for Dream Theater, I'm 
I'm really pleased with the action. That that's a that's a, another canvas that's afforded me a lot of freedom too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, Hugh, I, I j- just um, in closing, update the audience on what you're doing now. You're still actively doing art, and I know that you have a gallery showing coming up in Los Angeles. I've actually been to this uh, gallery and I've done something there myself. I know exactly where it is. Mr. Music Head, which is right on Sunset, right across right next to uh across from Guitar Center there and you're going to be uh, That's right. you're going to be there on June 1st and you're going to be having a, a gallery show, right? You're going to put some of this stuff up. Yeah. yeah, it's a one-man show. It's going to hang for a while and the the first opening night is on June the 1st. You know, I you know, and I jokingly say this as we feed off the carcass of what used to be the music business. You know, it's not, it's got, it's not what we knew in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, and so on. It you 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 have to be nimble and flexible. And you know, at, at this point in my career, I have amassed quite a bit of work and a lot of personal work. I'm not just driven by album covers. That's not all I do. I continue to work in the corporate realm. You know, I, I do work with Boston Beer and. I've even designed beer labels for, for Dream Theater and Rush and so on. But um, the you know the gallery prospect has always been interesting to me. As an artist, we, we all kind of dream of having gallery shows. But unlike a lot of other peers that I have, I've just been too busy to think about it. But in recent years, because people have shown interest, like like Sam Milgram at, uh, at uh, Mr. Music Head, um, the people that the AO5 gallery in Austin, Texas. They've had me down there a few times for shows. Um, it's, it's a growing interest of mine. And it seems other galleries too. Um, there's a gallery in Toronto, one in, one in London that are starting to show interest. So gallery shows have been interesting and I, I continue to work. I mean, Kevin Shirley just through Instagram got in touch with me and I only discovered Joe Bonamassa really a year prior to Kevin's call or Kevin's message, he said, you want to do a cover with me? And I type said his name on Rush, Dream Theater, Iron Maiden and stuff in the past, but I'd never really met him. But he brought me in on Joe's first album a couple of years ago, and I'm currently finishing up the artwork on his next, uh, well, this next album together with him. Beth Hart's another person who's, I don't know if you know Beth, but she's a, she's a powerhouse. She's a real She's deal. worked with Joe, yeah. Yeah, and she'd worked with Jeff Beck, and she was on stage singing to, you know, uh, Buddy Guy at the Kennedy Honors Center. The same night, Hart, or Anna Nancy sang to the boys in Led Zeppelin. You know, seeing Beth on, on that, I had no idea who she was until I started researching, and boy, oh boy, she's amazing. Um, so I've got the privilege of working with her, too, right right now as we speak. So, and Billy Sheehan, I just finished the Talis album, which was the album that they might have brought out in 1985. Right. You know, and they brought it out last year. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I know Billy and we've talked about that. And uh, yeah. It, so, so this gallery stuff is really, you know, I'm looking at your site now and there's uh there's the art of rush gallery where you can buy some of these images and I'm, I'm looking through it to you and I, you know, I bought a second home in Vegas lately and I got a ton of open wall space. So I'm going to, I might be doing some shopping soon because the, the, there's just some beautiful stuff here, but you're going to be able to buy Thanks. this and you're going to see it up on the walls at Mr. Music had, right? Yes, you are. I mean, I mean, rush will be present, but it's going to be a lot of my personal work as well, because that's a, I've noticed that a lot of people come to my shows and 
you know, a lot of them are driven by the fact that they know me and they associate me with Rush, but they'll come in and go, wait a minute, what's all this? You did all this? You know, it's, it's a revelation for some people. And, and a lot of people end up not buying a Rush piece. They'll buy something else because they're taken by, by something that I've, I've produced. Um, you know, I also have my own website, which is the hughsignartshop.com, which allows me to kind of, you know, represent the other part of my my imagery which isn't all music driven right you know which is and, there, and there's a link there too to the rush backstage and to the place to buy rush albums you know or rush artwork i should say great stuff it really is it's uh you know I, i've been such a fan of your work for so long and when i uh you know kind of kind of randomly had the had the chance to uh run into uh uh, was it Andy? I think it is uh, that that put us together. Um, Andy Wilson. Andy Wilson. I mean, Andy Wilson. Uh, you know, former. I think it was seventeen years with Live Nation and Dane um, Clark, who's the drummer with uh, John Mellencamp and myself. We've had a probably as so many projects were born of the pandemic. You know, isolation. Yeah. We started. A, we're in our third year of a podcast. We've had sixty some. Yes, we've had everybody from, you know, Van Dyke Parks, you know, Kenny Jones from the Small Faces of the Who, you know, we've had Rudy Sarzo, uh, you know, P uh, Peter Frampton, a, a lot of really, you know, Matt Sorum, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, uh, you know, grateful, you know, the, the, well, I think I've mentioned the ones that I can remember, but there's, there's a lot of people that we've talked to and it's been fun. It's, you know, Dane's the encyclopedia, he knows everybody. He's probably more like you than I am in the sense that he knows everybody and everything about the industry. Sometimes I confess I have to do a Wikipedia crash course before <laughs> I meet these people. Well, uh, Andy, we, Andy's we, the guy who put us together, and I want to thank him, uh, yeah. Andy Wilson. And, uh, you know, it's just it's it's just great to get to talk to you and just I'm sure just scratch the surface on some of these stories and maybe we'll have to do another round at some point. And I I'm in LA and the West coast often, and, and I'm going to put June 1st on my schedule. If I happen to be West, I definitely would love to come meet you and see some of the stuff up on the walls. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And I appreciate you mentioning it during this, this talk, but yeah, I'd love to meet you in person. And, you know, if I get out to Vegas, I'll try and find you. I understand you have not, not only your new home, but you've built a studio there, which Yes. Yeah. I've got a second home there now. I still live full time for the moment in New Jersey, but I, I do have a second place there. And, you know, needless to say, I mean, I there's a ton, as I'm sure, you know, musicians who are now doing art and doing stuff in galleries and paintings and what have you. Uh, so there's there's if you really do go deep into this gallery world, I have a feeling you're going to be out there quite a bit because it seems like uh, every few months I'm having uh, an artist, a, a musician who's now doing art, doing uh, gallery showings, whether it's Wentworth Galleries or, or any of these places. So this could really be a whole nother phase to your your career if, if you wanted to chase that down more. Well, certainly. And that's what's happening. I mean, the Mr. Music Head shows you know, paintings by people like Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, uh, Ronnie Wood, they're all painters in their own time. You know? yeah. So that's just a lot. They all paint. They're, along with the legendary photographers like Barry Wenzel and Mick Rock and Bob Gruen, they're all represented in these galleries. These music-centric galleries like Mr. Music Head or Brian List Gallery in Toronto or Snap Gallery in London, these, these are the galleries that 
center themselves around music. So, uh, you know, it, it, to me, it's, it's a, it's a no brainer. It's a, it's a good fit to, to uh, pursue those places to sort of show that work. And again, it, it's, it's understandable that people think I'm just in, in the business of making art for music, but it's always gratifying to have people come to the galleries and say, Oh, this is cool too, you know? So. Yeah. And people, if they go to your website, will see some of that other art and some of the other things you've done that are, are not music related. And again, the website to connect off of everything is just hughsyme.com. And uh, it's, it's an amazing website. You get all these images up there and click around and get lost and just looking at all the great stuff that's there. Hugh, it is a, a pleasure and an honor to speak to you and uh, continued success and please stay in touch and I'll be looking for more of your great stuff on album covers and hopefully if I happen to be West when you're there on June 1st, I will, uh, I'll look you up and hopefully get together and get to see you. That'd be great, man. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure and an honor uh, talking to you as well. Well, great to talk to Hugh Simon, get to know him a little bit in that conversation. We really just scratched the surface about the amazing amount of art that he has done in his incredible career. And you can go to his website to see a lot more on that. Hugh was nice enough to send me a print of the Permanent Waves cover, which I greatly appreciate and appreciate him taking the time out. And as he, as you heard, uh, he's got a gallery opening coming up soon, Mr. Music Head in L.A., so be sure to go check out his phenomenal, phenomenal art. Thank you to Lenny Kravitz for joining me earlier in the podcast as well. Again, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. New ones each and every Thursday, wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to follow me on social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, Instagram, and the Facebook page. And be sure to listen every day to Trunk Nation, Faction Talk, Sirius XM Channel 103, live daily, 3 to 5 Eastern Time, noon to 2 Pacific, or on demand anytime you want, audio, video, and more on the Sirius XM app. Catch you on the radio, I hope. Catch you back here next Thursday for another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Have a good week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hop, hop, hooray. Nordstrom Rack's got sweet deals on everything Easter, which is Sunday, March 31st. Get to Nordstrom Rack now and save on Kate Spade, New York, Two-Faced, Steve Madden, Calvin Klein, and more from just $30. Score great brands and great prices on Easter looks for everyone, plus spring decor, gifts, and all kinds of deliciousness. Rack up the deals today at your Nordstrom Rack store. What will you find?